Welcome to the Families Under Pressure podcast series, brought to you by the Life Course Centre. Families Under Pressure explores the opportunities and the challenges, social, economic and structural, for families to provide the best possible foundations for children to realise their life's full potential. I'm Professor Matt Sanders from the University of Queensland and a Chief Investigator in the Life Course Centre. Today, we're joined by Tony Wren, the Executive Director of Anti-Poverty Week, which is held every October to raise awareness and understanding of the causes and consequences of poverty in Australia and to encourage action to end it. The Life Course Centre is closely involved with the work of Anti-Poverty Week as a sponsor, a supporter, and research partner. It's a great pleasure to have Tony with us today to discuss Anti-Poverty Week in 2021. Oh, hi. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here with our very good partner, the Life Course Centre. Tony, why don't we start by you telling us a little bit more about Anti-Poverty Week, its purpose and its objectives, and maybe you could also define for the audience what's actually meant by poverty. Sure. So Anti-Poverty Week, we think it's unique in the world, actually. So it celebrates the week around the 17th of October, which is the International Day for the Eradication of Poverty. It was started by Professor Julian Disney here back in 2002. So we're about to have our 20th anniversary next year. The idea was to have it over a week so that there could be more activities and action that happen. And it very much is a community based approach. We don't get any government funding. And the purpose is really to help our Australian community to better understand poverty and that poverty actually does exist in this country, but also to encourage people to take action to end poverty. And so when we think about kind of defining what poverty is, because I mean, everyone's familiar with doing it tough and financial pressure and so on, but what's actually technically meant by being in poverty? Well, we typically use the most kind of accepted definition, which is really 50% of median income. And that in Australia has been researched over many years with the University of New South Wales Social Policy Research Centre and ACOS, the Australian Council of Social Service. So they're together in a partnership and each couple of years they will look at the household income and expenditure data from the ABS and come up with quite detailed reports about particularly, you know, the number of people who are living below the poverty line. So the poverty line now for a single person is $457 a week, but it's obviously adjusted. So if it's a sole parent with two kids or a couple, it's a higher amount. But it's basically half of what the median income in Australia is. So I guess a really good example now is um, the job seeker payment which is the payment for people who are unemployed. And that's only now set, even though the government did grant a permanent increase in April, it's around $320 a week. So it's well below the poverty line. Just in terms of the COVID pandemic, we've seen government set the rate at about $750 a week for the job keeper for people who lost their jobs. So even the government is saying $320 isn't really enough, but they're still sticking with that for the income security payment. 
I guess one of the things that governments around the world are becoming increasingly focused on around the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and I just wonder, could you reflect for a moment on how important is poverty reduction, do you think, to attaining many of these goals? I mean, do you see a strong connection there? Well, it is the number one of the SDG goals, so it's really that fundamental. I think, sadly, we don't have a very big focus on it in Australia, And I don't think our Australian government has taken it particularly seriously. You know, we've seen some pushback as well from this government about goals that are imposed from international forces. Yeah, I I really wonder, though, whether they just have trouble articulating, you know, how on earth they're going to tackle these sort of lofty aspirational goals. There's 17 of them, and they all seem really, you know, wicked tough problems to move. But beyond that, I was just wondering if you could share with us your knowledge and experience of the lived journey of families who are really doing it tough in poverty. Can you give us a little sense of how it really affects people's day-to-day lives and how they relate to their children and families and community? That's really, I guess, where the rubber hits the road. And last year, we partnered with the National Council for Single Mothers and Their Children because when we think about families that are really in the lowest incomes in Australia, they typically are families headed by women and they're single parent families. They have the highest rates of poverty. And sadly, that hasn't really shifted even in the last 30 plus years enough that we would have expected to see. What do they really find tough to do? To flip it on the other side, what we've seen is what happened when actually they got more money. So when the pandemic hit, the coronavirus supplement was brought in and it was $550 per fortnight extra. The Council for Single Mums actually started a campaign, 550 Reasons to Smile, and invited their members to actually post a picture and a little comment about, well, what have you done with that money? And frankly, in Australia, it was quite heartbreaking to see people were actually posting pictures of winter pyjamas for their kids and saying, I can afford to do this now. The booking form that they're getting their car serviced for the first time in perhaps years, they can afford that. Paying their energy bills. And the really big one that came through was being able to afford enough food and particularly healthy food. So things that others take such for granted. What about their mental health and well-being? Well, that was the other thing that really came through in that. um, So there were multiple surveys as well that we um, partnered with them. And the increased income actually really had a big impact on reducing anxiety, giving hope for the future. So all of these parents, you know, want their children to have a good future. And I think when they're trapped in poverty, and that's the reality, the low payments actually stop these families from being able to fulfil their potential. I wonder also whether it has effect on people's sense of control and personal agency. When you literally have no capacity to do some of the things that you know are good for your kids and yourself and you literally can't do it, it must be very deflating for people's sense of personal agency. Definitely. And I've heard many women speak about feeling so ashamed that they can't afford to purchase after-school sport or other activities, school excursions, even, you know, kids having to decline birthday party invitations because they can't afford to take the present. We are one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest countries in the world 
And people really shouldn't have to live that way. When people feel shame and at times blamed for their own situation, it's often a circumstance where people feel stigmatised and discriminated against. I mean, is that your experience too, that it's almost the language of poverty sometimes makes it really hard to have a conversation because there's a certain amount of stigma associated with being in poverty. Would you agree or not? Oh, absolutely. And and again, like we hear that from, say, our, you know, one of our partners is Food Bank Australia. They release the Hunger Report every year in Anti-Poverty Week. Their surveys have shown a huge amount of stigma for particularly, again, those single parent mums having to ask for and get food hampers. But also we hear that from financial counsellors and other emergency relief providers. The way we talk about poverty, yes, it's very important. And we do try and have a solution focused. Um, You earlier referred to the SDGs as being these really uh, lofty goals, but also perhaps impossible goals. But actually, we know we can solve poverty. Mm. And they're aspirational. And that the last thing that people who are really doing it tough and are experiencing overwhelming stress due to their financial hardship and others is to have any kind of messaging that implies either you're to blame for it all or it's a hopeless case and there's nothing that can be done when in fact there are many, many people living in very difficult financial circumstances who are still fine parents. They're trying to do their best with their kids. Have I got that right or, or would you see it differently? No, no, I, I, I don't see it differently. I was speaking to someone recently who was talking about, well, what about financial counselling? Is that going to be the solution? And you say, but our experience is that some people who are living with the least are the best money managers because they have such a little amount yes. to deal with. It's actually the amount of money that's the problem. And that's, again, back to what we saw last year with that coronavirus supplement by increasing the payment we saw the practical benefits but we also saw that poverty for single parent families was actually halved we can do it and and so we need to also convince our government and policymakers that it's in their grasp the coronavirus supplement cost 19 billion dollars the job keeper payment cost 90 Billion, and there's been a lot of debate about how much of that was wasted. But we know the coronavirus supplement wasn't wasted because we also know low-income people spend the money. They spend it on those basic household goods and services, which also flows through and stimulates the economy. So it's a win-win. Look, obviously COVID has cast quite a shadow over any discussion about poverty and hardship in Australia. And Uh, What do you think COVID-19 has really shown us in terms of what we can do? I like to hope that there's an element of we are all in this together. We can, as a community, come together and help each other. And I think we've seen lots of great examples of that, of people really, you know, helping their neighbours and just reminding us all that that's really important. We should trust the science and the evidence. We know that if you actually give people right at the bottom, more income, you will, one, lift them out of poverty, two, improve their lives and the lives of their kids, and three, stimulate the economy. One of your things we've been talking about is this sense of agency and control. And at one level, you think about resources, funding, providing individuals with a capacity to have better control over their lives. But at the same time, COVID has also taught us the value of collective efficacy, a belief that we as a community, as a whole country, if we join the dots and are moving in the same direction, a lot can be accomplished. That sense of 
you can have this co-occurrence of a bit of individualism that promotes personal agency and then collective efficacy that is much more inclusive and is socially connecting for people. We're now seeing that with the vaccination rollout that, again, when people have the opportunity to be vaccinated, particularly the messaging and even the provision is through trusted networks like potentially community organisations, the vaccination rates have been incredibly high, which is very, very welcome. Some of the positive lessons that perhaps we can take out of the COVID experience and government responses to it. I know this is something that the Life Course Centre researchers have been tuning their attention to, the possible silver linings, if there are any, in terms of long-term reforms and so on that could emerge from COVID. What are your thoughts about this? Well, we would hope that the National Cabinet, which is a creature of the pandemic, it's an obvious mechanism to really have a strong federal, state, territory agreement on social housing provision. Affordable housing is a big issue in terms of driving poverty and driving homelessness in Australia. We've had this sort of blame game between the feds and the states, and to some extent it's true that when the feds have put more money in, some of the states have stepped back. The National Cabinet, and I've certainly put this to Michael Sucker himself, is a really great opportunity to have a proper agreement where we're not having that blame game and we're not having that if I put a dollar in, you take a dollar out. I think that's really the only way forward. And there's some new research that was published in August from Compass Housing that showed the states can absolutely not do it on their own. The waiting lists are too great, not taking account of population growth. The waiting lists are over 200,000 now. So we really need to have that federal support. And it doesn't mean that the feds have to build the houses, but they can put that funding in to make it happen. Doesn't it show you, though, that in a crisis when it's needed, funding priorities can be juggled all over the place and money can appear from lots of different sources that most people didn't even think were possible? And they are possible, really. It's a question of priority. Solving poverty is absolutely doable and we should be doing it. Australia is the wealthiest on a per capita basis. Just just moving on to the issue of solutions to poverty and poverty reduction and exit from po- poverty and that kind of thing. I've spent my career studying families and parenting and worked with parents from many, many diverse socioeconomic contexts. And the one thing that has always struck me is that The thing that families want most, really, or parents want most, is they're concerned about the well-being of their kids. And they can find themselves in really, really difficult situations and you can find just amazing... I don't like to use the term all the time of resilience because, you know, it'd be nice to not to have to be too resilient all the time if you had less adversity you had to deal with. But at the same time, there's a real strength that can evolve in a situation of challenge and vulnerability and disadvantage. And I'm just wondering, how much do parents have to learn from each other with respect to what works in either coping with, managing or exiting from poverty? Certainly the networks that, again, if I think about those single parent networks, they are an enormous sense of strength. I think particularly for those women who've escaped domestic violence, which is why they might be now bringing up kids on their own. So the support they get from others who've been through that situation. Definitely one of the big policy areas we need to tackle is the child support scheme. I actually was involved when it was 
born in 1988. It was really designed to reduce child poverty. And sadly, we haven't really made those inroads because it has been eroded. And some estimates show that something like 1.6 billion is owed just in child support that's through the public system. That's not private arrangements or debt that's been written off. And so we've joined certainly with a number of organisations to call for an independent review of that child support system because it's just not working. And we're hearing increasingly as well that it is being used as a bit of a weapon in cases of violence. Okay, just taking a slightly different angle here now to thinking about the life course. And I'm wondering if you'd share any sort of reflections or observations you have about the notion that a child raised in poverty is likely to remain in poverty throughout the rest of their life. Is that actually true? The data that Melbourne Uni published reconfirmed, well, that growing up in poverty means you have over three times the risk of living in poverty as an adult. Okay, so that means there are still kids who have grown up in poverty who are exiting poverty? There are, but it's quite shocking. I mean, we do think of ourselves as quite a meritocracy and that we've got good education systems and people can come from poverty and do well. But it's pretty shocking that we don't have much opportunity for that. You know, if you think about mobilising a population to take this seriously and thinking about what are some of the attributes, life skills or capabilities that we need to be developing in our children who may be growing up in tough circumstances to actually leave it and to thrive. You know, you've got this balance on the one hand between what governments do and what supports are available to assist people. And then you've got those human capabilities that relate to this evolving set of competencies that children acquire through their relationships, through their schooling, through the kind of opportunities that are created. Where do you think the emphasis should be? Can you go too far one way so that you get people growing up who are overly reliant and dependent, which is a fear of many more conservative thinkers, that you get these kind of welfare dependencies, that they become overly reliant on them, they never learn to stand on their own feet. And on the other hand, you've got remarkable stories of people who have been in very difficult circumstances but have somehow managed to um, evolve a way in which they're just not recycling what they had experienced as children. So would you like to comment on the, the relative emphasis of the two, two sort of sides to that? I think the evidence is pretty clear that finishing high school, finishing your education is, a, is absolutely critical in terms of future life opportunities. The Smith family have a very successful program which which works, you know, directly to support kids through their education system as a, a combination of monetary support but also mentorship and things like that to keep kids in school and keep kids connected and thinking about the future. I'm also thinking about the AIM program, the Indigenous program that really has that aspiration where it takes kids, Indigenous kids, into the universities when they're at high school and say, you know, this is a place for you too. So to give them that immersive experience and expectation that, yes, university is also for them. Then obviously other things around it to make it make sure that it happens, you know, that universities are really making sure they're inclusive to those, those students coming in. Yeah, education is absolutely critical. And I think the other resilience work that I've looked at 
often, and I think that's going back to the original resilience studies, talked a lot about people who kind of seem to make it have at least one person in their life that is a trusted advocate and support. And it may be a relative or it may not be, and it could be a teacher, it could be a friend of the families, but having that connection, that one connection. And I think we've seen that too with even older people, research on well-being of older people, if they have connection, a good, strong connection with one other. One of the things about the crucial importance of certain relationships kids have growing up and the fact that the person who can be a mentor, an advocate, a strong person in that child's life, I really wonder whether many of those people are just conveying a fundamental kind of notion, which is, I have confidence in you and your capacity to do what you want to do. It's sort of like an affirmation of belief in a person's capacity to rise to the occasion, to do what they need to do. And it's extremely empowering for people to know that someone believes in them. And if you're growing up with at least one person like that, gee, that's a very powerful ally in your life. And everyone needs enough healthy food and a safe, affordable home. You know, those structural things we can't really escape from. And, and, you know, even just not having a space to study, to being in overcrowded housing where there isn't a quiet place to study, that's a huge barrier for a young person who is trying to get ahead and finish their education. Okay, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of the work that Anti-Poverty Week has been doing with the Life Course Centre researchers this year. I believe this is focused on the associations between gender, violence and poverty. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, we were really excited to partner this year in a more concrete way. The whole issue of really the issue of women's safety came to the fore earlier this year. We had the big women's marches But it was also at the same time that the government did stop that coronavirus supplement and we were drawing attention to the fact that there was a link that actually the majority of people who received the coronavirus supplement were female, that there was also a link that when women, if they can leave violence, unfortunately many, many end up needing to rely on income security and if that income security isn't enough, they will be in poverty and then that can have lots of other negative impacts. We asked the Life Course Centre if they had any research that could actually kind of substantiate that sort of anecdotal and, and, you know, common knowledge really, and also to see if you could really much more um, draw the cause. People who had been the victims of violence, were they going to be more likely to be living in financial hardship? And we wanted to put together a fast fact on women, poverty and violence, and to use that material as part of it. We worked with the Life Course Centre and they were able to do some analysis of the HILDA survey and a women's health survey. It was coming from two angles. One, that if you already were in financial hardship, the risk, the chance that you would be the victim of partner violence or sexual assault was actually higher. And that's an interesting finding and it confirms what we know that a lot of that violence is, is about power. And so for the women who are less powerful because they're less financially higher up in the financial situation, they have a higher risk of poverty and we also have this higher risk of being the victims of violence. But then the other side of it was that 
women who had not been in financial hardship, but if they were the victim, particularly of severe partner abuse, the next year, actually, just one year on, their risk of being in financial hardship was much greater. So we were able to use that research as part of our fast fact and also in some media work we did, which was really good to get it out in the Australian, to get it out on Radio National Breakfast ahead of the Women's Summit that was then taking place. Just sort of reflecting on the big takeaway messages for Anti-Poverty Week this year, with everything we know and the experiences of COVID, what are the big ticket items on your wish list for ending poverty in Australia? Well, we're excited this year to be bringing together two big campaigns. One is Raise the Rate for Good, which is really arguing for the increase in income support above the poverty line. And the other is Everybody's Home, which is arguing very strongly for that investment in social housing and a 50% increase in Commonwealth rent assistance. So we're bringing the two together because those two, we say, unlock poverty for millions of Australians, including families and children, if we do those two things. And so um, we've actually just launched a petition with the three organisations to the Treasurer to be calling for that as a, as a call to action for Anti-Poverty Week this year. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Tony. It's been great to learn about the work of Anti-Poverty Week and the ways we can best support families in Australia. I encourage our listeners to visit the website antipovertyweek.org.au to find out more and to connect with Anti-Poverty Week. You've been listening to Families Under Pressure, a podcast series from the Life Course Centre. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your family, friends and colleagues and subscribe to Families Under Pressure wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to sharing more episodes and insights from our experts within and associated with the Life Course Centre. For more information on the research and activities of the centre, visit lifecoursecentre.org.au.